All right, welcome back everyone. You can get your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 2 as we uh, continue our study through the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. The title of the message is Man and Woman, and we are continuing to look at the book of firsts, the first mentions of things in the scriptures, and see how God intended that things be ordained and set up from the beginning. So in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, if you'd like to read along with me, the word of God reads as follows. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from it all, uh, from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We'll stop there. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we consider the entirety of this chapter and uh, your desire for man and woman, and as you brought Adam and Eve into existence, and how you loved them and nurtured them and brought them along. Lord, as we consider all of these things, including your plan and your design for marriage, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you minister to us? And may our heart and our ears and our eyes be open to the things that you have for us. Lord, may we be receptive to the word of the Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 2. You know, why are we studying Genesis? You might ask yourself. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis because of uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. One reason is to understand the origins of all things as God created them and as God intended them to be. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it, that those who do not know or understand history are doomed to repeat it. And certainly that is no more true than in studying the book of Genesis and really in studying the scriptures as a whole because in them God has laid out for us not the complete history of the world from uh, beginning of creation to this point in time, but certainly God has encompassed how man is and how man acts and what is in the heart of man. And we must understand who God is and how he intended for things to be. And another thing that we need to condition ourselves with this morning as we approach the scriptures is that we must not approach the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, with our own preconceived notions or interpretations. And why do I say that? Because you and I were born at a point in time. And there's only a few years since we've been born to this point in time. And we can uh, tend to look at the scriptures through our own lens, through the lens of just the few years that we've been on this earth, when in reality, the scriptures are a historical book that go all the way back to the beginning of time. And so our approach to the study of God's word is never about my interpretation or my seeing things purely through my lens. We need to learn to see through the lens of God himself and of the Holy Spirit. So it's critical that we have an open heart and an open mind when we're coming to the scriptures, especially in the book of Genesis, as it's setting out things like the principle of first mention. And we've mentioned this before, but we're mentioning it today to remind you that because we are studying the book of Genesis and it's about first things and the first time things are mentioned or the first time things happen, is that we're going to see that as God has set things out for us, that he wants us to understand that the way things are today most often are not the way God intended for them to be. And so we need to look at that this morning. 
Now, as we get into our study this morning, if you go back just a little bit into chapter 1, verse 26, you see where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man, and then in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. It's important for us to remember that because as we come here to chapter 2, we see uh, now it's coming back to the detail behind that creation and how God created man, Adam, and how he created woman, Eve. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. <clears throat> then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So we see here the first mention of the seventh day or the Sabbath day, uh, this seventh day. And what is unique and distinct about this seventh day from the other six days that we've just studied and read about in chapter one? Well, there are three things in particular. Number one, there's no mention of evening and morning. The other days had a mention of evening and morning. And then, as you recall, as you just turned back there and look, it said an evening and morning was the first day, an evening and morning was the second day, and so on. So there's no mention of evening and morning suggesting that God's Sabbath rest would have no end. And so that's important for us to understand that when God finished speaking and creating in the first six days that he rested from all of his work. And then number two, there's no record that God blessed any of the other six days the way he did here, directing your attention down to verse three. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So God blessed this day, and it does not say that he blessed the other six days. You see, in blessing the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God is giving that day to us as a blessing for us. And then third, after blessing the seventh day, it says that he sanctified it, which means that he set it apart for his own special purposes. You see, God sanctified the seventh day because it was a gift to man for rest and replenishment. And most of all, because the Sabbath is a shadow of the rest available through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God does not need a day himself to have off, but man needs to see the rest of God and to know that we can enter into the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, beginning in verse 9, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has finished, has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. You see, man taking a rest... Following God's example is important for us, but not just a rest physically on having a day off and all of that, but understanding that with respect to our sin and uh, the work, you know, man working for his salvation. I, I see and hear it repeatedly when you speak with people and you say, why do you think that, or, or do you think you're going to heaven? And quite often people will say yes, and you say, why? And often they will say, because I uh, work hard at being a good person and I try to be a good, you know, make good moral choices and those kinds of things. But you see, we can't work to enter the rest that God has provided. The only way we can enter the rest that God has provided is by accepting the rest that he has provided. You see, this is because God's rest for us isn't confined to one literal day. In Jesus, God has an eternal Sabbath rest for his people. And though today we are free from the legal obligation of the Sabbath, we dare not ignore the importance of a day of rest. God has built us so that we need a day of rest, but we are also commanded to work six days. 
Someone wrote this, he who idles his time away in the six days is equally culpable in the sight of God as he who works on the seventh. In our modern world of four or five day work weeks and generous vacation time, surely more leisure time can be given to the work of the Lord. And then finally, as we just close out this thought, thinking about the Sabbath, remember in God giving the law, in Exodus chapter 20, he said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, as a part of the law, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the seventh day is a day of, uh, is a, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God, and on it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So just God emphasizing the fact that we as men and women need a day of rest. And then Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees who were upset that Jesus' disciples had gone through the fields and picked heads of grain to eat them. They were upset because they said, your disciples are doing work. And here's what Jesus said. He said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the importance of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is important to God. And God has made it so that the Sabbath should be important to us. We realize that uh, technically the Sabbath day is a Saturday from the point of view of our calendar. But from the point of view of our Western culture, really it's Sunday for us. But the point is that there should be a day of rest. There should be a day where we stop and we replenish and we rejuvenate. This is important to the Lord and it's all throughout history. It's all throughout Old Testament history. Uh, as the Lord created <clears throat> uh, every seventh year, the land should be given a rest and rotated. And then the, uh, in seven sevens or 49 years on the 50th year should be a year of Jubilee where people took a rest. So these things are important to God. So continuing on in verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the first mention in verse four of the word Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah. So the first time this name of God is mentioned and so that's important for us. And then in verse five, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Going back to the days of creation, it had not yet rained. God had created this canopy over the earth, and God had uh, created almost sort of a terrarium kind of a climate and that there was a constant mist and there was uh, just things growing in a very lush and a rich way. Um, and now we find after God has pointed out all of these things that the Lord God had uh, not yet provided man to till the ground, hold that thought, we'll come back to that in a moment. Verse seven, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So the first mention here of God forming or creating man, uh, you know, he had mentioned it from a high level back in chapter one, but here he's going into the detail of what happened when God created man. And some things that we need to note here about verse seven. First of all, only man is a living being created in the image of God. You see, all of the rest of God's creation, God created, but only man is created in the image of God. Therefore, man is an image bearer. None of the other animals, none of the rest of creation was to be the image bearer before God. 
God created man uniquely to be an image bearer of his glory, of his person. So it's good for us to stop and to ask the question, how is it that I, that you, that we are bearing his image to those around us? You know, this, this idea of man being the image of God comes forward into the New Testament where we, God is conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And there he is continuing as those who have received the blessing of the cross and the forgiveness of sins, that God is now developing his image in us. The word for breath here where it says that God breathed life into man is ruach, which is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek New Testament word pneuma, and it can mean spirit or Holy Spirit or breath or wind, depending on the context in which it's used. So we're told here that when God created man, that God himself breathed his life into man. So let's understand that God himself created human life. Therefore, life is precious because God created it. And we believe this is the same as God saying that he breathed or he put his spirit inside of man at creation. And we need to hold this in mind as we come to next week in chapter 3 and we look at the fall of man. This is very significant. So man became a living being. The King James renders that man became a living soul. The word can mean living soul, living being, living person. And the point is clear. God created human life. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God had specifically planted this garden, we know as the Garden of Eden, to be the dwelling place, the habitation for man. It was the perfect place for man and later for the woman as she was created and brought to be by his side. And then in verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's stop for a moment and consider these two trees that God had planted in the midst of the Garden of Eden. First is mentioned the tree of life. The tree of life was to grant or to sustain eternal life, we find in Genesis 3.22. God still has a tree of life available to his people. So where does he talk about that? Let's look at those scriptures. In Genesis 3.22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, uh, so that's having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, the tree of life is the tree of eternal life. Therefore, God, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we find this reference. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And as we studied the book of Revelation last year, we understood and discovered that God has a heavenly garden of Eden. He has a paradise. And in the midst of that is a true, literal tree of life. And in Revelation 22, we find this said at the end of the book. John speaking said, and he showed me a pure river of, river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. You see, this tree of life 
is a glorious thing that God has created. In the book of Genesis, as God created that tree and planted it in the midst of the garden, you see, that was but a foretaste. That was but a beginning. Because after the fall of man, when God himself had to put angels to guard the garden so that man couldn't go back in, and in his sinful state, partake of that tree of life before man's sin had been atoned for. God now projects forward and says, I've taken that tree as it were out of the garden and I've set it in heaven until the time, until the day when man can actually take of the tree of life and eat and be blessed by the stream that flows from that tree of life and that God himself would provide fruit from that tree of life that would bring healing to the nations that was caused by the sin of man. It's such a beautiful picture. And then we come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the tree in chapter 3 that we'll get to next week. With which Satan tempted Eve first and then through her tempted Adam. So moving forward in verse 10 down to verse 15. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the river Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. There's not a lot that we can say about these rivers because when the flood came later through uh, Noah, uh, much of the earth's landscape was changed, but we do know that the Tigris and the Euphrates uh, were kept, although it's possible that those rivers shifted uh, the way they flowed. And people have often used this passage of scripture to try and go back and trace to where the Garden of Eden was. But many commentators believe that it's a futile attempt because of the way the flood altered the landscape. So there's really not a lot we can say there except that God himself, as it says here, had established these four river heads and they went out and flowed throughout all of the land. But then we find in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So to tend and to keep means to work. Now let me remind you at this point, the fall of man has not yet happened. Sin has not yet entered the world. You see, many people view work as a result of sin, but it's not true. You see, God mentioned work here. This is the first mention of work that God had designed that man should tend and keep the garden. Work was not a result of the fall and the curse, but rather work was created by God as good and perfect. It's something that he created for man to do. You see, God wanted man to till the garden. Work was a blessing. And the Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, it appears to us from the way we read this that it, at this point, since the fall of man hadn't happened, that if Adam or if man wanted to eat from the tree of life, that he could have done so. Why? Because sin had not yet marred life. But we have no indication that that's what he did. But God did specifically command the man, saying, um, you can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you shall not eat of that tree because when you do or if you do, you shall surely die. Now let's point out something. This is the first time, verse 16, that God commanded something. You see, God is the one who sets terms and conditions, not man. God is the one who forms covenants. Covenants are initiated by God. Commands are initiated by God. And when God gives commands, they're always for our protection 
and they're always for our benefit. And so God wants us to know that when he says that we should do something or that we shouldn't do something or that we should stay away from something, it is there as a boundary, as a safeguard. It's not just advice. It goes beyond advice. A command is a decree. And when God says, don't do it, stay away from it, then we need to understand God's command is not optional. And if we make the mistake of viewing God's commands as optional, then the basic tenet of life that comes from the scriptures comes upon us, which is that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. In other words, our actions have consequences. And if we choose to ignore God's word, if we choose to deliberately disobey, if we choose to ignore a commandment or the commands of God, then we are inviting upon ourselves and into our lives the results and the consequences of our sin, and we are really inviting God's judgment against us if we choose to disobey the things that God commands. So God said to Adam here, remember Eve at this point has not been brought into the picture. If you eat of it on that day, you shall surely die. The presence of this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a choice for Adam. You see, God created man with free will. That's evidenced by the way that God is speaking to Adam here. Just as a parent would say to a child, you leave a plate of chocolate chip cookies on the table and then you say to that child, I don't want you to touch those cookies. I'll be back in a few moments. I'm going to step out. And what happens in that moment when you step out? That child is tempted with that decision. And yet the parent has said, uh, don't do it. I don't want you to do it. You're going to ruin your meal and I don't want you to partake of that. Now you say, well, then you shouldn't leave them out and have the temptation. You see, God made man with free will. He made man with the ability to choose because God wants our allegiance. God didn't create robots. He didn't create us without choice. He created us with choice. And in order for us to choose good and to choose life and to choose that which is right, those things that please God, you see, it wouldn't be pleasing to God if we had no choice. It means all the much more when we choose to do the right thing, when we choose to have fellowship with God. God wants our love and obedience to him to be the love and obedience of choice. Some observations. Adam had only one way that he could sin, but today, of course, we have many and countless ways that we can sin. God made this command originally to Adam. And as we get further along in the scriptures, in particular to the book of Romans, we find out that Adam was acting on behalf of all of mankind. <clears throat> and that makes sense because when you stop and you read these things and you stop to think, what if it were me in that position? What if I were in the position of the man that God was speaking to here? Then God would uh, be giving us that same choice, and clearly he does. And the other thing to note here is that God clearly explained to Adam that Adam should not eat of this tree and that the consequences of eating of that tree would be death. There was no ambiguity in what God said. You see, Adam didn't have the luxury of saying, well, it was unclear. I didn't understand what you meant. It was incredibly clear and it was painfully obvious. And as God was talking about death here, we understand it to be instant spiritual death, meaning man's fellowship with God was immediately interrupted and broken, and a progressive physical death. Because up to this point in time, death had not entered the world. God created man for life. 
And the Lord God said, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. This is the first time that God said something was not good and that man should, uh, should not be alone. You see, in the previous chapter, God had said that he wanted man to, um, to have life. He wanted man to be blessed. And now he says, uh, as he went through each of the days of creation, he ended those days saying it is good. God looked at what he had done and said that it was good. Now he says for the very first time, this is not good, that man is alone. God doesn't want man to be alone. He says, I will make him a helper comparable to him. Different versions of the Bible translate this idea slightly differently, but they all are saying the same thing. A helper, a helpmeet, a companion super suited to, to his needs, a helper such as he needs, a helper corresponding to himself. And God gives man the responsibility here and the accountability to be the leader in the home. And God gives the woman the responsibility and the accountability to come alongside him and help him. This does not mean that there is to be no help coming from the man toward the woman. It means that when God looks down from heaven upon the family, he sees a man in leadership, good or bad, hopefully good, a man who is faithful, a man who is true to the calling of the leadership that God has given him, and a true leader, of course, helps and enables and supports those around him. You see, we only see, quote, helping as a position of inferiority when we think like the world thinks. And this is where our thinking gets challenged. We tend to read this portion of scripture that we're in right now so often through the lens of our understanding of the world today because the world has said that this view of man and woman is outdated, this view is traditional and we've progressed way beyond that and that these things are demeaning to women and they give men way too much power but that's what the world says and remember the word of God says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him so let's look at this a little more closely Jesus said in Matthew 20 verse 25 God, uh, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, we are called to love and to serve one another. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, serve one another. In Ephesians 5, a similar thing is said, beginning in verse 21, and this is sort of at the beginning of the passage on marriage that we all look at and say this is kind of the capstone or the definition of what a godly marriage looks like. It says that in Ephesians 5:21, we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. And then, he says, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and that word refers there to order, not a dictatorial slavery kind of a situation, but head in the, in the sense of order. Uh, the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And the comparison breaks down there because Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is over everything. And we all look up to and serve him. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, here's your responsibility. Love your wives. Serve your wives. Lead your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, the wife is an equal, comparable partner in the grace of life alongside her husband. She is never regarded as inferior or less than. She merely has a different role to play 
in the way God has ordained things than the man does. He is not to play her role, and she is not to play his role. This is God's created order. Then in verse 19, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam. Now verse 19 is the first time Adam's name is is mentioned. Prior to this, he's only referred to as the man. And God brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Adam's name means red. People wonder why. And red probably because that was the, uh, the color of the earth from which he was created. That's what most people believe. And so Adam was tasked at that point with naming every creature as God paraded the animals in front of him. And um, as Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. We believe that as Adam saw the animals two by two walking in front of him, that he very quickly realized there's two of all of them and only one of me. And that Adam immediately felt that sense of loneliness and that sense of void perhaps in his life. Not that God hadn't created him in a complete way, but God had a purpose and a plan in allowing these animals to be paraded before him. So that God could use that as an object lesson to show him that he needed more. And the Lord God then caused a deep sleep, verse 21, to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So God caused Adam to see that he needed something else and that God was going to give it to him. God was going to meet that need. And although um, we, don't, we don't see the word surgery used here, certainly this is the first time something like that has been done in verse 21. And as God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, he then took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So it would seem by the way it's being described that God was the divine surgeon and that he anesthetized Adam and that he opened him up and took a rib out and from that rib he fashioned the woman. This is such a beautiful picture. God used Adam's own body to create Eve to forever remind him of their essential oneness. As Adam came to know Eve, he would see many ways that they were different, but he must never forget that they are essentially one and that they are made of the same substance. They are more alike than they are different. You see, we also know the bride of Christ comes from the wound made in the side of Jesus. Jesus was called the second Adam by Paul. So from Christ's side, his bride was secured as he shed his life blood in untold agony. You see, Jesus was not anesthetized as his church was born from his side. You see, there's a beautiful traditional Jewish saying and it goes like this. God made woman, not out of man's foot to be put under him, nor out of his head to be over him, but she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her, and from next to his heart, his heart that he might love her. I want to read that again. God made woman, not out of man's foot to be under him, nor out of his head to be over him, but she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her and from next to his heart that he might love her. I think that is a beautiful picture of how God did it so that man would understand that woman came to his side to be his helper, his helpmeet. And verse 23, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God brought her to him and he saw her. Now remember as we think about this for a moment, Adam was created first and then Eve was created. Adam was made 
to be the head of the relationship. Eve was created to be the perfectly suited helper to come alongside Adam. This subordinate relationship of wives to husbands is found before the fall and the curse. So again, we need to remind ourselves here in chapter two, we're dealing with life before the fall of man, before sin, before the curse. God intended, as we're studying first things, that this is the way life, marriage, marriage relationships should be. God created man in his own image, and male and female he created them. Adam recognized that she was both similar and different, and God gave Adam and Eve understanding in these things. Later, Peter the apostle wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And we don't have time to uh, teach or exposit that verse this morning, but the command is that husbands should love their wives and dwell with them in a kind and a gentle way, dwell with them with understanding, honoring the wife. Now, does that sound like someone who's given a license to trample and to dictate? I don't think so. God's design in the New Testament, just as in the old, is that the husband should give honor to his wife. And when it says to the weaker vessel, it's referring to a couple of things that typically speaking, men are stronger than women, and men tend to be stronger emotionally. Uh, women with their emotions tend to bring something to the man that we don't have, and that's compassion and, and feeling and empathy. And that's, this is not saying that that's a bad thing because we need that. That's a part of being the helper, helping us see the complete picture but he's saying as, as coming and understanding that often she is going to need the strength of the man to come alongside her and to help her and to lift her up and to honor her. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, God is saying here through the pen of Peter that how a man treats his wife can affect whether or not God hears your prayers. Does that sound to you like God is giving man a license, as many say today, to dictate to and harshly mistreat his wife? I would say to you it's the exact opposite. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we find this amazing passage, and now this passage has a context, and again, we don't, can't go into it this morning, uh, but it says here, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And what I believe that's saying there is that she is God's special gift. You see, as God gave the woman to the man, he says the woman is the glory of the man. For man was not made from the woman, but woman from the man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are of God. You see, God points out the symbiotic relationship now between men and women. So God looks at woman as a special gift, as the glory of man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the word marriage is not used here, but this joining together through the rest of scriptures is referred to and quoted, and we believe that under the heading of the principle of first mention that God here is referring in Genesis 2.24 to the institution of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. At this point in history, uh, Adam and Eve had not yet had children. There were no in-laws. None of that had happened yet. But now this principle, this law, if you will, is being laid down that a man shall leave his father and mother. In other words, go out from your family. And as you find your wife, you are joined to her. And they shall become one flesh. 
You see, this is God's order, the way that God intended for things to be. You see, we do not have the right as men and women to reorder what God has ordered or to declare something God has said or something that God has done as out of order or outdated. Men and women were separate but distinct and God wanted man and woman to have oneness in their relationship and marriage was the design that God had put in place that man and woman could come together in a sense of oneness and it's evidenced here by how he says that they should come together as one flesh. Now this is the first time a reference to the sexual relationship between man and woman is mentioned, but the becoming of one flesh is not purely sexual. Coming together as one flesh uh, may be in one aspect sexual, but it is also coming together emotionally and relationally and learning to think and to live and to act together to make decisions together. They were to come together as one flesh. And God had ordained that this one flesh, this becoming one together, is something that should stand forever. You see, in Matthew 19, Jesus, again, taking this, says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to the, his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What is this passage telling us in Matthew 19? That God ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman, period. There is no exception. So you see, we do not have the right to alter what God spoke back at the beginning of time. This has been God's design from the beginning as, the, as confirmed by Jesus thousands of years after God said it in the book of Genesis. Paul, taking this same idea in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 30, says, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as, his, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Many want to believe today that the monogamous two-parent family was invented in the 1950s, by the American television icons, Ozzie and Harriet. Many of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But Adam and Eve are the original family. They are God's ideal family. This isn't polygamy. This isn't having a concubine. This isn't the keeping of a mistress. This isn't adultery. This isn't homosexual cohabitation. This isn't promiscuity. This isn't living together outside the bonds of marriage. This isn't serial marriage and remarriage. This is God's ideal for the family, and even when we don't live up to it, it's still important to set it forth as God's design, God's plan, God's ideal. I love how this commentator put it. God's original plan was that one man and one woman be one flesh for one lifetime. God's original plan was that one man and one woman be one flesh for one lifetime. And verse 25 here in Genesis 2 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were both naked. They were not ashamed. The idea of nakedness is far more than mere nudity. It has the sense of being totally open and exposed as a person before God and before man. To be naked and not ashamed means that you have no sin, nothing to hide, nothing to be rightly ashamed of. And at this point in their lives, Adam and Eve 
could walk around naked because it was not a sin. There was no shame in this. And all things, as it says in the scriptures, are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, God sees all anyway. You think that by wearing clothes or going into our house that somehow just as, as we've gone out of the, the view of the sky or the sun or of a satellite perhaps, that we're out of view. But you see, not so with God. God sees everything. Adam and Eve knew they were physically naked before the fall. What they did not know was a sinful fallen condition because they were not yet in that condition before the rebellion that happened. You see, we often feel uncomfortable when someone stares at us, and this is because we associate staring with prying, and we don't want people to pry into our lives. We want to remain hidden and only reveal to other people what we want to reveal. When we want to be the most attractive to someone else, uh, we do the most to change our normal appearance into something that we think is attractive. We have the thought, if I really want to impress this person, I have to fix myself up. You see, none of this feeling, none of this idea was present with Adam and Eve when they were naked and they weren't ashamed because before God, they had nothing to hide. So we find here in Genesis chapter 2, as we draw this chapter to a close, God's design for man and woman, God's design for marriage, God's order for the marriage relationship. And you see, everything that God has spoken is good. Everything that God has spoken is true. And there is nothing that God has spoken here that is optional because God gave us this as truth. He gave it to us as a command. This is the God-ordained way that the marriage relationship came together, was formed, and the way God plans for it to be carried out throughout all of eternity. God created and formed man and woman in this way, and we need to understand it and embrace it. And in the next chapter, we will find out more about this relationship between Adam and Eve, and we will read about the tragedy of the entrance of sin into the world, the fall of man, and the curse of sin falling upon man as a consequence of our sin, of our rebellion before God. So for you this morning, if you would like to read further about these things, about the marriage relationship, I commend to you Matthew 19, Ephesians 5, and 1 Peter chapter 3. So let me say that again. Matthew 19, Ephesians 5, and 1 Peter chapter 3. Three great places to go and read about God's design for the marriage relationship. We've quoted from some of those passages this morning and looked at them, and yet God has given us his pattern here. He's laid it out for us in Genesis chapter 2. So this morning we are going to take a moment now and go to the Lord's table. So get your elements together as we partake together of the Lord's table. So I'm just going to